You can turn over in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, making our way through this book. And if some of you are wondering what are we going to do when we're done with this, guess what? We're going to go into 2 Thessalonians. I just figured we'll do it, knock them right off, one by one. So, but we're beginning a new chapter today, uh, this morning, and we'll be just introducing this chapter, basically. Uh, and this, this will cover, basically, what Paul uh, wants to talk about the rest of the book, right through the end of chapter 5, verse 28. And so let's stand in honor of God's word, and uh, I just want to read this for us. And I'm just going to go ahead and read the whole chapter. Finally then, brothers... We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Verse 7, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Verse 9, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about these who are asleep or dead, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Father, we ask that you would do just that. Encourage our hearts this morning as we delve into this new chapter in 1 Thessalonians. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. I want to open up our message this morning. It kind of brings to light the point of of Paul's text here. And uh, the theme is, is set for the rest of the letter. It's kind of a transition here that we'll talk about. But he says there that you ought to walk and aim to please God just as you were doing, but do it more and more. Do it more abundantly. And this illustration kind of depicts that. Sometimes 
We think living the Christian life can be futile in the world we live in. Well, the sky over Germany in 1941 was as blue as it had ever been. Dark green shoots struggled through the soil. Then spring awakened in the burst of color. The sun cast its rays among the birch and alder leaves, lighting them to an electric green. Spiders spun webs in filigree with finches scavenged while while finches scavenged sticks and grass for nets. The heavens seemed unaware, even mocking in the routine march of the seasons, while the long winter of hardship saw no end for the Jews who were laboring and dying in Nazi concentration camps. They scratched for survival. They died alone, frozen behind a hut, shot in a ditch, gassed in an underground chamber. But still the sun shined on and the rain fell, predictably, as it always had. Yet within the human heart stirs a tenacious determination to find meaning, to discover purpose, even in the midst of meaninglessness. And in the darkened hole of suffering, when the universe seems out of control, the human soul searches desperately for even the smallest pebble which to build an altar of hope. Under the gaze of Nazi guards, a group of Jewish men were assigned to carry stones from one end of the camp to the other. It was rumored that they were going to construct a building. Others whispered that the stones were maybe part of a road project. Day by day, the men hauled the stones, their backs aching, their bodies groaning against the load. Then finally, the day came when they completed the task. The stones were piled in an enormous mass on the other side of the camp, ready for use. The men stretched out upon their bunks that night with just a little flutter of accomplishment. The next day, the men were ordered into the camp yard as usual. Their new assignment was to carry the same stones to the other side of the camp, back to where they had been in the beginning. With dampered spirits, they began. But it became apparent that the task was meaningless. The stones were moved back and forth, back and forth, without purpose. And as the men realized that they were acting in futility, that they and their accomplishments, their work was meaningless, they began to waver, and then they began to die. There is a divine grace within us which urges us to believe that life is not pointless. That we are not just superfluous. That is why when hope dies, guess what? We die. I've seen that with loved ones. The passing of loved ones. One of the spouses dies, the other one gives up hope. Pretty soon, they die too. Our God-given sensibilities as believers will not allow us such nonsense 
And this is why Paul is writing here in chapter 4 to begin urging them to live by God's standards, not their own. His, his constant plea was for the Christians in Thessalonica to live a holy life worthy of God's name. And yet Paul was aware of this hostile environment, this hostile atmosphere in which they lived. They had to deal with the same persecutors that Paul had to deal with. But they lived there. Paul left. They lived there. He was aware that evil seemed to prosper and righteousness seems to suffer. And so he was quick to link the present with the future. Today makes sense only when eternity really is kept in the foremost of our thoughts. Live in holiness and obedience now so that we can do what it says in Verses 16 and 17, when the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. And so we shall be with the Lord forever. Today I want to talk to you about living in the present of the future. Living in the present for the future. Living in the present for the future. I think all of us can remember in our childhood Accomplishing a task, whether it's a class or sporting event or whatever, and hearing these words, well, you, you did pretty good, but you could have done better. You didn't give it your all. Uh, you could have done better. As grandparents, we share that with our grandkids all the time. See, there are times in life, I believe, even as believers, that we uh, tend to slack off. We tend to grow weary in achieving our best, to not living up to our full potential in Christ, whatever that may be. Sometimes, even in our Christian lives, our spiritual lives, we grow weary. And the reason I tell you that is because in Galatians 6, 9, Paul writes, let us not grow weary of doing good. So that assumes that we will grow weary. He continues, he says, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. Now, as a spiritual leader, as a pastor, entrusted with your spiritual well-being as a congregation, it's, it's my goal each week to edify you, to build you up, to help you grow as a congregation spiritually. I never want to browbeat you. I never want to coerce you or badger you or try to intimidate you. That's not my role and that's not my goal. So when it comes to our church here at Grace Bible Church, I'm very thankful to be able to pastor this church. It means more than words can tell. I'm so thankful for your love of God and for your desire and your love for the word of God, to your desire to grow in the deep knowledge of God and his word. I, I see your love for the body of Christ, one for another. And I appreciate, as Ken appreciates, your servants' hearts. That makes our ministry here as elders not just easier, <laughs> but it makes it 
joyful. It makes it joyful. We enjoy leading and ministering here among you. However, by no means have we arrived. We are far, far from where we need to be as a church. I would even dare say that we, even as individuals, us included, are far from where God desires us to be or where he expects us to be. So what does Paul do here? He prays, you know what, you ought to walk to please God just as you were doing and that you will do so, he says, more and more. What's Paul saying here? He's saying, hey, Thessalonians, you're doing great. I'm I'm glad to hear back from Timothy how well you're doing spiritually. But guess what? You're not done. God's not done with you yet. You can do more. You can do better. And it's the message that I want to pass on to you that Paul received from the Holy Spirit. I'm glad for our spiritual progress as individuals. I'm glad for our spiritual progress as a church and our faithfulness to his word. Our devotion to the Lord, our devotion to his word and his kingdom. But you know what? We can do better. We must do better. Too much is at stake. And that's really the duty of a teacher. The duty of a teacher is not just to impart truth to you so that your head swells up, but hopefully to motivate you to what? Apply the truths you're learning. In an ever-increasing way, so you can grow in your spiritual service of the Lord. That's what was in Paul's heart as a pastor. Look at that little phrase at the end of verse 1. That you do so more and more. Now you're doing well. We're doing well. But we can do better. Back in chapter 1, verse 2. Paul says this about them. He said, we give thanks to God always for you. Talking to the Thessalonians. Constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before the, our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. It's so neat to see how God is working in individuals' lives. We're glad. We're happy. We're thankful for that. Even in verse 13 of chapter 2, he says, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. And then he continues in verse 14 of chapter 2, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Jesus Christ that are in Judea. Now remember, Paul was not here a long time. He founded the church along with Timothy and Silas and it says that he taught in the, in the uh, temple seven, or two, three Sabbaths. So he could have been there as long as maybe six months because maybe they didn't like what he was teaching because <laughs> he wasn't conforming to their religion so maybe they wouldn't let him teach there anymore. But it didn't mean that he didn't continue to minister there. Some commentators believe that maybe he was there as long as six months. He did seem to have a job. And so he would have to establish that, and he did spend time there. And so Paul wanted them to know that, hey, you're doing good. 
but I want you to excel. I want you to abound more. You can do better. And this is what Paul looked at his own life and said the same thing. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, he says this, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it known because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. See, none of us have arrived. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. It doesn't matter how mature you are as a Christian. You have not arrived spiritually to where you can just put the car in neutral and coast. You can't do that. If you do that, sooner or later, the car is going to slow down. Sooner or later, you're going to come to a hill. In our Christian lives, we're never called to coast. We're always called to excel. And there's always a danger, I think, in a good, sound Bible-teaching church that somehow that we've arrived at where we need to be. And we kind of plateau out. That would be a temptation for any of us here this morning in terms of spiritual service and blessing, knowledge, And it might be a temptation, I think it was a temptation for the Thessalonians. Even though Paul had just been there a short time, he taught them a lot of stuff. Even within a couple weeks, it was remarkable what he was able to impart to them. See, they didn't do church like we do church today. I'm sure he was meeting with them every day. You know, sometimes when you go overseas and they have a conference and you're speaking at a conference, I mean, they want to get the most out of you, so you're speaking constantly. You know, not just once a day. Maybe five, six, seven times a day. And that's probably what he did with these folks. He wanted them to be ready when he left, when God would call him away. It's only been a few months for them. But a remarkable thing, the hand of God was upon them and allowed them to have a testimony throughout the whole region of Achaia. They were living exemplary lives. They were setting a pattern for others to follow. They had known the blessing of God that was upon them. Maybe some among them said, hey, you know what? I think we've kind of reached the plateau here. We're done. I mean, we've been taught by the best, the Apostle Paul. I think we can just coast for a while. Paul says, no, you can't. Paul says, not true. I want more from you. And Paul begins to exhort him, exhort them here in chapter 4 throughout the end of the, the book, all the way to verse 28 of chapter 5. This whole section is really an exhortation from Paul for the purpose that they will abound more and more and more in their spiritual growth. You're doing very well, you just haven't arrived yet. And that's reminded, if you look back just one chapter, verse 10 of chapter 3, he kind of indicates that. He says, I want to supply what is lacking in your faith. After he just got done praising them for their faith. He said, you're still lacking some stuff. You quite haven't got it all yet. 
And then he says the same thing in verse 10. We urge you, brothers, do this more and more. It's a call to do better. It's a call to really look at your own life, your own heart, your own Christian walk, and say, am I too comfortable? Am I pressing myself to grow more? Or if I just allow my Christian life to become a routine? It's a call really for spiritual excellence. That's what that is. It's a call for spiritual progress, spiritual growth. That, that phrase, more and more, some translate that excel, E-X-C-E-L. Perisu in the Greek, and it means to overflow. It means to abound. It means to be over and above and around, to exist in the fullest quantity, to be advanced, to be abundantly supplied. It can mean extraordinary, surpassing. This is what Paul is telling them. You're good. Those of you who are in Thessalonica, you're you're doing great. I had a good report from you, but you know what? You can do more. I want you to be not just the normal believer. I want you to be extraordinary. I want you to abound even more. And so this is the heart of Paul as a pastor calling his church the body of Christ, to excellence, to excel in a life of spiritual service. That would be everything that God calls them and wants them to be. And this was a common theme for Paul. As you look throughout his epistles, just very quickly, I'm just going to read a couple here. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Ask yourself, are you abounding in the work of the Lord? Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He told them further in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7. He actually uses this word. He says, but as you excel, that's the word, more and more, abound. As you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you. So these were these, at this point, the Corinthians were doing well. They were, they were growing. They were excelling in everything. At the end, he says, see that you excel in this act of grace also. What was he talking about? The act of giving. He told the Philippians, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 9, he said, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This was Paul's heart. A little later on in the New Testament, Peter even joins in in 2 Peter 3, verse 18. It's like the Spirit of God is just causing this message to recur over and over and over throughout his word. 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. 
See, there it is. Living in the present for the future. That's what we're called to do. And the whole matter of pressing toward the mark of growing and excelling is really at the heart of every pastor, every Christian leader. So I'm here this morning just to pass Paul's message on to you. It's not new ground. It's not new truth. You're not going to walk out here going, wow, I never heard that before. But it's meant to be as an encouragement, as a time of refocusing, living in the present for the future. You could subtitle it, How to Live a Life Pleasing to God. How to Live a Life Pleasing to God. Well, he says there in the first two verses, and this is all we're going to look at today. Finally then, brothers, we ask and we urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. There it is. This was a common theme throughout the Gospels. John chapter 8, verse 29. Jesus said, he who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone. For I always do the things that are what? Pleasing to him. This was the heart of our Lord and Savior, to please the Father. John also writes in 1 John chapter 3, verse 22, And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we ask, because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. See, just because we're a Christian, we don't just get a free pass. We don't get whatever we want. There are some qualifications to God's blessing in our life, even as believers. And that's why he says there in verse 1, hey, I know how you, you, you've learned, you received from us how you ought to, he says, walk. And that, that word walk is used by the Apostle Paul to indicate how we conduct our daily life. It's used in Ephesians, it's used in Colossians. And it's connected with, we want to walk in a way, we want to live our lives in a way that are pleasing to God. Proverbs 16, 7, it says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Wow. Or Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says, For am I now seeking the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. See, we have too many people pleasers in the the kingdom of God today. They're too worried about what people may think about them. About what they say or what they do. We need to live for God and God alone. Well, I put there on the first page of your outline just a couple things, and I just want to read these, and this isn't really part of the message, but you can look up the verses on your own. Several facts about pleasing God, because it's a big subject. And I just, these are just quick little snippets. First of all, unbelievers cannot please God. And we'll get into this later. Unbelievers cannot please God. If you haven't put your faith, your trust in Christ as Lord and Savior of your life today, guess what? You being here is not pleasing to God. It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. If you don't know the Lord, 
You can't be pleasing to God. I don't care how hard you try, how many homeless people you feed, how much money you give. The Bible says it's not going to work because you're not a believer. You have to be someone who has put your faith, your trust in Christ. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. Secondly, without faith, we cannot please God. So unbelievers can't please God. But guess what? We can't please God if we're not operating in the realm of faith. That's what he, Hebrews 11.6 says. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. Thirdly, giving thanks and doing good pleases God. Well, I thought you just said, no, for unbeliever, that's true. Nothing you do pleases God until you come to Christ. Once you come to Christ, God has prepared beforehand good works that we should walk in them. And when we give thanks and we do good, that pleases God. He says, do not neglect to do good and share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Fourthly, preaching the cross pleases God. I wish more churches understood this. Preaching the cross pleases God. Talking about the blood of Christ, the body of Christ, all that. That's pleasing to God. Giving to others pleases God. It tells us that in Philippians 4. Obeying your parents, young people, pleases God. You want to be pleasing to God? Obey your parents. Don't make them ask you 50 times to take out the garbage or clean the dishes. Do it the first time. Blow their mind for once. Just obey them. What a wonderful thing that would be. And you see how God will bless your life. It doesn't matter what... If they're asking you to do something you don't want to do, who cares? They're your mom. They're your dad. They're the ones that brought you into this world. They're the ones that provide for you. The Bible says we need to have respect for our parents. And one way to show them respect is to obey them. Colossians 3.20, children, obey your parents in everything. Everything. For this pleases the Lord. And then the last thing, walking with God pleases God. In Colossians 1.10 it says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. I mean, don't you want to be pleasing to God? The God who gave his son to be your savior? The God who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light? The God who covers all of your sin by the blood of Christ and washes them away as white as snow. The God who gives you his word and the Holy Spirit and the church to encourage you in your spiritual growth. We should strive to be fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Ray Stedman tells a story of a young boy. He asked, how old are you, son? And the young boy said, I'm 12, I'm going 13, but soon I'm going to be 14. <laughs> Do you ever ask your young children that? And that's how their reaction is so many times. You know, they state their age, but pretty soon they're going to be this, and then they're going to be that. They're eager to grow. They want to grow up, and it reminds me of a, of a new believer 
It's always refreshing to see Christians who are eager to grow spiritually. They want to take every opportunity to be under the teaching of the word of God. What happens when we grow older in the Lord, we grow a little more mature, and we have a tendency to drift into the kind of the humdrum spiritual life, I'll call it, where we lose that eagerness for the word of God. We, we lose that eagerness and that desire to grow that we should still have. Like a baby longs for its mother's milk. But unfortunately, the Christian life becomes routine. Yes, Sunday I go to church. Maybe I make one of the Bible studies during the week. And we lose the, the freshness. We, and, and Christ seems to, to fade off in the horizon. And we're in danger of losing that love that we had at first, as described in Revelation chapter 2. See, when you want to... <laughs> Keep your love for Christ fresh and vibrant and and just excited. It doesn't happen automatically. It requires deliberate effort. You have to put effort into it. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we move from into this instruction... This part of the letter where he's praising them up to this point, and now there's this transition. That's why in verse 1 he says, finally. He's not saying that, okay, this is the last thing I'm going to say. You know, like the pastor says, okay, just one more thing, and they go on for another 45 minutes. I've been known to do that. So, you know, I understand. That's not what he's doing here. He's, not, he's kind of saying, you know, in summary, based upon what I've told you in chapter 1, in chapter 2, in chapter 3, I want to give you something that's very practical for you. He wants them to understand that he cares for them. He was concerned about their spiritual stability under all the persecution that they were enduring. And so he addresses some concerns that Timothy probably had brought him back after his recent visit there. And so in this chapter, chapter 4, he addresses After the introduction in verses 1 and 2, he addresses moral purity. That obviously was an issue for them. He addresses love for the brethren and their need to work for a living. Verses 9 to 12, he talks about the Lord coming back and the events surrounding that time in in verses 13 of chapter 4 all the way to verse 11 of chapter 5. And then 12 to 22 He talks about some matters concerning conduct in the church. He introduces all this this practical stuff with an exhortation. Not to give up, to continue to abound, to continue to grow in the Lord. And so we learn here specifically to grow in your walk with the Lord. To seek to please him by learning and obeying his commands. It signals this transition from all the stuff he said before now into this exhortation. He obviously knows that they've been taught. He doesn't need to share a bunch of theology with them at this point. 
They've been pretty well steeped in theology. He says that in, in verse 1 there. He said, you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God. I've already done that. In verse, verse 2, he talks about the commandments that they gave them from the word of God. And he wants them to understand these things. In verse 1 of chapter 5, almost near the end of the book, he even says this, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Nothing. In other words, I've taught you everything I can teach you. That's what he's saying. You simply need to apply it. Well, the first thing here, we learn a couple things here about pleasing, obeying, and growing in the Lord. To walk in a way that is pleasing to God you must be in the Lord Jesus through believing the gospel. Notice he says, finally then, who? Brothers. You can say sisters. Brothers and sisters. It indicates that he's talking to people who have experienced this new birth. They've been born again. The Holy Spirit is now part of their lives. It's been imparted to them. So they're part of God's family now. We're not talking about unbelievers at this point. We're talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. At the moment of new birth in Christ, the Spirit places all who believe in Jesus into his body. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It comes upon all new believers, and it's not an experience. It's something God does. He places us into the body of Christ, the church. And it happens through the Holy Spirit baptism. Unfortunately, our charismatic friends have made the spirit baptism some weird experiential thing. That's not what it is. The baptism of the Holy Spirit happens when you place your faith, your trust in Christ. It's not some experience to be sought for afterwards. You won't find that anywhere taught in the Bible. There's a couple texts that they pull out of context and say that's what it's saying, but it's not saying that. Trust me. And here we have people who have this new relationship with Christ. They have the Holy Spirit. They're in Christ. They're brothers in Christ. And so he's, he's not questioning their salvation. But there's nothing wrong with doing just that. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with looking at your life and asking yourself, well, okay, have I been born again? Have I come to Christ in such a way as that I'm sold out for Christ? Because that's the only way you can come to Christ. You can't come to Christ half-heartedly. That doesn't count. Jesus always said, you know, if you want to follow me, what? You have to die to yourself. That means you're dead. Your desires are gone. Your dreams are gone. Everything that you had for yourself is gone. And you brought it to the sacrifice, the, the altar of sacrifice before Christ. And you said, you know what? Because you gave your life for me, I'm going to give mine for you. Physically, if needed. Pray that doesn't happen. But most importantly, spiritually. 
A lot of us have dreams and have ideas of what we want out of life. You know, we dream of this retirement thing and everything. I, I've, I've known too many people that put all their, their eggs in that basket and, and they retire and they have a stroke or they die. 30, 40 years they've worked. They've sacrificed time away from their family, time away from their God, time away from everything just to get that nest egg where it needs to be so I can just fish or I can go out on the lake or I can travel and see, see the world in my retirement age. And they retire and they realize that everything they lived for was in their job and now they don't have their job anymore. What do I do now? Families break apart. Marriages break apart. If you don't die physically, they die in many other ways because their priorities were wrong all along. So when we come to Christ, we have to die to ourselves. Set all that aside, and we live for Christ and Christ alone. So many times people in the church, they have family members or younger people who are just living in rebellion against God. They're not upholding biblical principles. They're not living for God. They're they're doing everything that a non-Christian would do. And you say, well, maybe you need to pray for their salvation. And the answer is simply this. I've heard it a million times. Well, no, no, no. Little Johnny, he's a Christian. Why do you say that? Well, when he was in third grade in the Sunday school class, they used to meet right over here. You know, we gave an invitation and he raised his hand. And he said he was a Christian. He wanted to be a Christian. You really think it's that easy? You think that's all it takes? To raise a hand? Where do you see that in the Bible? You don't see it. Where do you see in the Bible somebody taking somebody who wants to be a Christian and say, okay, well here, you got to understand these four spiritual laws and now we're going to pray this little prayer. And I know you're kind of uncomfortable about this because you don't know God and you're not a Christian, but I guarantee you, after you pray this prayer, you will be. You just follow me. Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. Go ahead. Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. And you walk them through this thing, and then at the end, what do we do? We coronate them a believer. Well, now you're a Christian. All your sins are forgiven. Go live for the Lord. Amen. Next. Nothing's changed. Nothing changed in their heart. They, They merely performed a human task. That's not what being born again is about. I challenge you to find anywhere in Scripture where someone was born again in the New Testament that their life was not radically transformed. I mean to the point where they walked away from family. They walked away from their religion. They walked away from their businesses. And they said, you know what? This new life means so much to me. That doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't matter. See, that's the kind of commitment that Jesus calls us to. Not making a decision to receive Christ. We want to pray for our unbelieving family. We want to be gracious to them, but we have to share the word of God with them. You don't want to be indifferent to them. But you have to understand that God has to do that work in their heart. And see, Paul is saying here that, you know what, okay, Thessalonians, you delight in his word, that's good, that's a sign you're a believer. You hate sin, you're, you're, you're striving to turn from sin, doesn't mean you're perfect. 
You're trying to be more like Christ each and every day. You're seeking to obey the Lord and please Him. Not because it's your duty, but because you're thankful for His grace in your life. That He's given to you. That He's pulled you out of the mire and muck of sin. And gave, given you a new life in Christ. And that's what he says. He says, those in the Lord Jesus. That's how that happens. You turn from your sin to the Savior. You believe the gospel. And when you believe the gospel, it transforms your life. You don't have to wonder if someone's a Christian or not. But that's what we've dumbed it down to. See, it changes our motivation from striving to earn God's favor to wanting to please him because we are objects of his favor. It's a difference, someone gave this illustration, it's a difference between having a maid who cleans your house and you're paying her. And you fall in love with the maid and you marry her. And now she's your wife. Guess what? She still cleans the house. But she doesn't do it for a check. What she do it for? She does it because she loves you. She cares for you. So to walk in a way that's pleasing to God, you have to be in the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, the Christian life is a walk. He points this out. He says that you ought to walk. That word walk should be there in your text. If you don't have the word walk, if you have another translation, that's probably not a good translation, frankly. This is a literal translation, walk. But he uses this metaphor to describe the Christian life. And it's helpful to think about it this way because he doesn't say, you know what, it's, it's a leap. <laughs> he doesn't tell us to leap. It's not just one big thing and it's over, right? It's not that. It's a walk. We don't get to where we need to be spiritually with one quick, sudden flash. It takes time. It takes time to walk somewhere. It takes time to grow in the Lord. It also kind of connotates that the Christian life is not an effortless flight. Like a bird soaring above everything. You see it out in the canyons, whatever. It's just soaring up there. It looks so peaceful. And I've heard some people say, yeah, that's what I do in my Christian life. I just soar above all the trouble and tribulation, all the problems below my... I'm so spiritually elite, I'm above all that. No, no. He doesn't say take a flight. He doesn't say take a leap. Sometimes that mentality is presented this way. You know, when you learn the, the secret in the Christian life, just, you just let, let, let go and, and let God. You ever hear that? Everything, all your striving, all your anxieties, go away like a bird just sailing above it all. That's not true. That's not true. Matter of fact, they would say if you're struggling with sin or you're wrestling with discouragement, oh, there must be something wrong in your spiritual life. If you're exerting any effort at all in your spiritual life, then you must not just be trusting in God. You're not resting in God. 
The picture of walking with God gives us a picture of some effort, right? When you go for a walk, what do you do? Most of you probably start your phone and you're thinking, how many calories, how many steps, right? I'm sick of these people. How many steps did you? I don't know. <laughs> well, your, your watch tells you, I don't really care. I, I don't really care. I mean, these, it's just crazy what it's become. That was great. I mean, it's good to exercise and all that. But, but at the same time, some people just get possessed by that. But a picture of walking is, is you're going to have to... Give out some effort. You're going to have to spend some energy. I remember when we were over in Hawaii and we were sick over Christmas. And then New Year's Day, Mason and Will wanted to take me on this hike up to the pillbox. And I thought, oh, great. And just gotten over two weeks of the flu. And we started on this hike, this walk up this mountain. And I thought I was going to die. I thought literally I was going to die. I made it to the, the, the pillbox. And I'm like, oh, thank goodness, you know. And they're like, well, wait, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm relaxing. And they said, well, we got two more to go. I said, not me. I'll see you on the return trip. I'm staying right here. I know my limits. But you, you couldn't just glide up that hill. You had to exert some energy. And when you're walking with people, a lot of times, what do you do? You talk, right? Unless it gets really steep and then you run out of breath. But usually you talk and you get to know each other a little better. Those, those are wonderful things. As believers, we get to know God more and more through his word. We also get to know him when we walk with him. We share our hearts with him through prayer. We walk with him daily by spending time alone with him. The destination is not some mountaintop, but rather, what? Conformity to Christ. We know the more time we spend in God's word and with God's people and with with the, the body of Christ in general, it's going to make us more like Christ. And we move, move steadily in our sanctification. and We become holier and holier. Not in a spiritual pious way. But in a way that would honor Christ. We grow to become more like him in his character and in his qualities. Galatians 5.15 says we are to walk by the spirit so we don't carry out the desires of the flesh. We're to develop the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Paul even tells us in Colossians 2.6, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, what? so walk in him. Just because you come to Christ, it doesn't end there. That's just the beginning. In Ephesians, he constantly uses that word walk, depicting the Christian life. In Ephesians 4.1, he says, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling which we have been called. And in chapter 4, he has to warn them. In verse 17, he says, Do not walk as the Gentiles walk. Don't walk as unbelievers in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of their hardness of their heart. Rather, Ephesians 5.2 says, walk in love. As Christ Jesus also loved you. Verses 8 and 10 of Ephesians 5. Walk as children of light. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Verse 15 and 16. Chapter 5 of Ephesians. He says, be careful how you walk. Don't walk as someone who's unwise, but is wise. Making the most of your time. Because the days are evil. 
Amen to that. The days are evil. But it's a walk. It's not a sprint. Step by step. You just keep on going. And eventually, eventually we'll make it. The question is, are you walking with God? Thirdly, if you are in the Lord Jesus, it's necessary to walk in a manner pleasing to him. That's what he says there. We ought to walk in a way that's pleasing to him. That word ought there means it's necessary. It's not a negotiation. It's not something that's just optional. You have to walk in a way that's pleasing to God. It means that we're not free to decide how we want to live as Christians. We've been bought with the blood of Christ. We were slaves to sin. He bought us out of that slave market. And now we are a slave to what? We are a slave to Christ. We're not our own bosses. We're not the captain of our own destiny. We're under obligation in every way to live in a way that glorifies God and pleases him on a daily basis. A lot of people think that the Christian life is not so much about pleasing God, but just trusting him. It portrays pleasing God as a a way of striving to earn his approval. That's not true. You have to both live in a way that's pleasing to God, and you also have to live in a way that's trusting God. Trusting God and pleasing God are complementary. They're not against one another. I mean, if you picture a a child in a foreign country living in a poor country in squalor conditions, no food, no clothes, dirty, malnourished, several health issues in this young person's life, this baby's life. He's not your typical Gerber baby you see in the commercials. And all of a sudden, a wealthy couple from America who's very well off shows up and they want to adopt a child because they can't have their own. And they pick that, that child out of all the children. And they take them back to America. And they bring them to bring this little baby to their home. And they provide the necessary food. They pro- provide the medical care to nurture this baby back to health. And they shower this child with all of their love. So that child grows up and he learns about the horrible situation that maybe he lived in before his parents rescued him. That child should be motivated to please his parents. Not to earn their love. But because they've already abundantly bestowed their love upon him. See, pleasing God begins in the heart. It begins at the thought level. And Jesus constantly reminded the Pharisees because they put on a good show outward, right? They had everything, you know, all the robes and all the outward stuff of religion. But he said, hey, that's not what I'm looking at. I'm looking at your heart. What's in your heart? He emphasized the need for inner purity. He even said at one point, if you lust after a woman in your heart, It's the equivalent of committing adultery with her. Romans 8.8, it says, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
2 Corinthians 5, 9. So whether we are at home or away, Paul writes to the Corinthians, we make it our aim to please him. It's very important that we understand that God wants us to live in a way that is pleasing to him. Fourthly and quickly, even when we are walking in a manner pleasing to the Lord, there's always room for growth. And that's why Paul says, do more and more. Hosea chapter 6, verse 3 says, so let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. This is what it takes if we're going to excel in our Christian walk. You haven't arrived. You're not conformed completely to the image of Christ. Don't believe the lie. Well, I don't need to do anything more. We always need to do more. We always need to grow more. That's why Paul in Philippians 3 talks about pressing on. When he wrote that passage about not having already obtained, think about this. He had already been a Christian for 25 years. And he's saying, I still haven't gotten there. I still haven't gotten there. I'm still pressing on each and every day. Fifth thing here, the way that we excel still more in our walk with God is to learn and obey his commands. And that's what he says in verse 2. He says, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Paul emphasizes that he wasn't the one making up these commands. This wasn't a command that Paul said. This isn't an a edict from Paul. It came through the Lord Jesus Christ. And he repeats it in verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Four things here. To obey God's commands, we must first know them. That's why we teach the word. That's why we want to understand more about the word. Secondly, to obey God's commands is not legalism. A lot of people think about when you mention God's commands or the law, that all of a sudden you're a legalist. No, that's not true. It's the response to his grace. A lot of people talk about, when they talk here, people, preachers talk about the obedience of, to God's commands. Usually people say, well, that's legalism. That's not grace. If you're thinking that, then you don't understand legalism or grace, frankly. Paul wrote in Titus 2.11, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men who believed, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. What does God's grace do? It, It teaches us to be obedient. It teaches us to be obedient. It motivates us to be obedient. See, freedom in Christ is not... Freedom to follow the lust of the flesh, the lust of the flesh, but rather freedom from sin. Thirdly, God's commands aren't helpful hints for happy living. <laughs> They're orders that need to be obeyed. He already said that when he was exhorting them through the Lord Jesus Christ, implying what? The Lord's authority. Fourthly, God's commands come come from him and not are culturally relative. Paul didn't make these up himself. 
It would have been very easy for the people that day. So, oh, Paul, he's out in left field. You know, that's not how we live here in Thessalonica, and we're going to do what we want to do. No, Paul was very bold. He said, I don't care what your background is. I don't care what your heritage is. I don't care what your traditions are. It's irrelevant to me. This is what God's word says, and this is what you must obey. It's absolute moral truth. It's interesting how you hear people equivocate on just the whole idea of morality today. Because they want to be politically correct. I mean, 50 years ago, no Christian, no Christian on the entire earth, I would venture to bet, would have ever thought that homosexuality was morally acceptable. That it was an alternative lifestyle. There's no way that would have ever been believed. But today, we have so many Christians, quote Christians, who think that somehow, you know what, it's not hurting anybody. They just keep it, that's fine. It's not fine. It's an abomination before a holy God, just like killing an unborn baby is an abomination before a holy God. And, and, you know, Christians are a little more bold in that area. But you know what? They still, they still can't help themselves. Because when they're presented with the question, well, what if, what if it's a child of incest or a rape? Well, the percentage of actually getting pregnant in those circumstances is very, very low. But even given that, Either you believe that baby is a life that was formed by God, or you don't. I don't think there's any exceptions. That may be hardcore for some of you to hear, but I don't see an exception to that. That baby's innocent. It doesn't matter how it was conceived. And to take an innocent life is always taboo. It's wrong, period. It's not a political statement. It's a statement that comes from God's word. But Jesus claimed to be the truth, did he not? I am the truth. And he also prayed in John 17, 17, that, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So see, it comes full circle. If we start bending God's word to make it fit, with our godless culture and our politics, we will not grow in our walk with God. We will not please him or help or further his kingdom in any way. So we have to obey his commands even even when they are counter-cultural. And we need to have the boldness and the willingness to stand up for such things. Before our communion time, let's just bow in a word of prayer and and then we'll have our communion. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I know that this message, it was hard for me to study and to prepare because, Lord, it does convict all of our hearts, I'm sure. I know I have a tendency to coast at times and think, well, why keep on putting up so much effort? You don't see all the fruit you want to see and You get a little growing weary and well-doing. But God, you reminded me that that's that's not why we're doing this. We're doing it to be obedient to you. 
And Lord, we need to pray for those who don't know you, that have yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, to fully yield their lives to Christ. It's, it's important that we understand that Jesus is Lord. We don't make him Lord. He is Lord. And when we come to Christ, we acknowledge his lordship. We acknowledge who he is in our life. And we give up everything else to follow him. It doesn't mean he's going to take everything else away from us. But it means that we have to hold on to things loosely. Whether it's our family, our jobs, our desires. In, the, in our heart of hearts should be the desire that if it's not what God wants for us, then we don't want it either. As appealing as it may be. And Father, we pray that as we seek to grow as the body of Christ and as individuals, we will take advantage of the opportunities that are given to us to study your word, to gather together for prayer, and and do what you have called us to do as the body of Christ here in Redwood City. And Lord, if there's someone here who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, I pray that today they might cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. I feel the conviction that is being talked about this morning. I don't want to carry this burden with me anymore. I want to bring it to the cross. I want to bring it to Christ. Prepare our hearts now as we get ready for communion time. And we pray, Lord, that you would allow us first to examine our own hearts. This time is for the body of Christ. If you're here today visiting and you don't know Jesus, then we would just ask that you don't partake because it really doesn't mean anything to you. This isn't a means of getting God's grace or getting salvation. That's not what the Bible teaches. This is just a cracker and some grape juice that represents the blood in the body of Christ. It doesn't turn into the body. It doesn't turn into the blood. It is a symbol of Christ's blood and his sacrifice. And if you have trusted Christ, it doesn't mean you have to be a member of this church, but if you've trusted Christ and you are a member of the church of Christ at large, we encourage you to partake together with us when the time comes. And we thank you for today. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.